If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open up to John chapter 2. John chapter 2, we're going to start at verse 13 and read down to verse 22, even though for our purposes this morning, we're going to focus primarily, primarily on verses 18 through 22. John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. Follow along as I read. And the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews therefore answered and said to him, What sign do you show to us, seeing that you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews therefore said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Let's pray. Father, guard our hearts this morning. Keep us from callously or indifferently thinking on matters that are much too difficult for us to fully comprehend. Keep us, Father, from callously or without much concern proclaiming the truths that we see in this scripture without also recognizing the sobriety that the claims of Jesus bring to the human heart and human mind, his authority, his rule, the certainty of his victory, and all that that contains as it's brought to bear on our lives, even in the here and now. Father, I ask that if there's anyone here with us this morning who does not know of the things of which we're about to speak, or perhaps they've heard but don't truly understand, that you would open their eyes and their ears, give them the ability to see and to hear you in the person of Jesus Christ through his words, as we speak here this morning. And that, Father, even as we move into a a time of communion, observing the Lord's Supper and uh, following the command that Jesus himself gave to all his disciples who would come after him, that we would think long and hard with great joy of what it is that's been provided freely to us. We ask all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. 
I want to try to tie something of this passage into what we do this morning as we participate in communion, as we take part in the Lord's Supper. If you were here in Sunday school this morning, adult Sunday school at least, this is the passage that we had to study, that we read through, that we discussed. And if you weren't in adult Sunday school, what in the world? Where, where were you, right? Okay. This is the passage that we had, um, had for this Sunday, and after spending a good bit of time in it, just thought, well, we might as well dig in a little bit deeper. And so what I want to do is look at verses 18 through 22. We read, starting at verse 13, just to help kind of frame things in context. Um, The event is fairly straightforward. Jesus and his disciples come to Jerusalem. This is uh, during the time of the Passover. This is one of three um, high festival days on the Jewish calendar where all the men were required to come and to gather at Jerusalem and participate in this national gathering at one time and at one place. So the place is packed and it's crowded and it's noisy and it's busy. And Jesus arrives on this scene and comes to the temple precincts and doesn't like what it is that he sees. He sees a bunch of animals that are there, presumably, for the sacrifices that are going to be offered. Sacrifice, animal sacrifice was a key, an essential component of worship for God's old covenant people. You have to have it. And yet, there was something about what they were doing with the necessary animals for necessary sacrifice that Christ didn't approve of. See, the issue here isn't so much the fact that Jesus was opposed to the fact that animals were being sold to be used for the temple sacrifices or that there were money changers that were changing over currency from the currency of one region to the currency that they were using for the temple. At least not here. Jesus' primary concern is not the business per se, but where the business is taking place, right? Fine, provide the animals for the sacrifice, change over the currency and all that, but, but the place you shouldn't be doing that is here where people are coming to gather to worship and to pray. Convenience and comfort aside, there are some things that are just bigger than consumer satisfaction, There's some things that are bigger and more important than my personal convenience. And that's right and true worship. Now, for our purposes, what we want to do in looking at verses 18 through 22 is look at this issue of authority that comes to the forefront in what Jesus does. And we, we don't have sermon handouts for you today or sermon notes, I should say. I don't know if you're a note taker and if you, you, know, you start to sweat or panic if you don't have something to write down. I'll, I'll tell you right up front. Here's something you can write down. If you've got a scratch sheet of paper, right, if you don't feel like you've been in a church service unless you come out with something inked in, all right, two points that we want to try to make here. Number one, from John 2, 18 through 22. Christ rules over and in all things. Christ rules over and in all things. 
That deals with the authority question, which we'll get to in just a minute here. Number two, second point that we're going to make here, is that resurrection brings new revelation. Resurrection brings new revelation. Let me walk you through these two points as we prepare for communion this morning. It's interesting to note that when Jesus goes through and when he wreaks havoc on what apparently was just a non-consequential part of daily temple life, when Jesus goes through and upends all of this and brings correction and shows displeasure, the first question, at least according to John, that's raised is, Not necessarily, why do you do this, but on whose authority do you do this? You see that? The the first question is not primarily with the act that Jesus committed, but the authority that lies behind the act. The reason being is that everyone there knows and recognizes instinctively That for someone to dare to come into the temple precincts where the people have come to meet with God and to totally turn everything upside down and to rebuke and chastise and correct and drive people out, the normal average Joe doesn't do this kind of thing. Not unless he's insane. So the assumption then seems to be that for someone like Jesus, who at this point in John's gospel is relatively unknown, for someone like Jesus to do this, the assumption is there's got to be some reason or some greater power or authority that's driving him to do this, and we're going to find out what that is. So on whose authority do you come through here and make a scene like this? And notice what they want is not just a verbal testimony, right? What what do they ask Jesus specifically? A sign. What sign do you show us? What sign will you give us so that we can know whose authority you're acting on? In other words, we don't just want to hear you spout a certain line. Anybody can say, well, they're doing it on God's authority, right? Suicide bombers claim that they do what they do on God's authority. Merely claiming that you have God's authority or God's approval doesn't necessarily demonstrate anything. So don't just tell us, show us that you have the authority to do this, which now kind of creates a little bit of tension here as you come to Jesus' response. How is Jesus going to respond? What's he going to do? It's interesting that Jesus does not perform a sign. Here he is at the outset of his public ministry. They're not arguing and bickering with Jesus over what it is that he's done. They just want to know if he's got the right and if he's got the authority to do it. And so they're asking for a sign. What a great opportunity for Jesus to start 
A full-blown public ministry with a bang-up sign, right? Right there at the temple. Passover celebration. Captive audience. And Jesus doesn't do it. I think the reason that Jesus doesn't do it in part, we're not going to spend too much time here, but I think part of it is because Jesus is always skeptical of people who demand a sign in order to respond to his ministry, right? Because you're asking for a sign, not because you want to believe or because you believe already. You're asking for a sign because you don't believe. And now you're putting the burden on me to prove why you should believe. And Jesus says, I, I'm just not going to play that game. I'm not one of these foreign gods that as long as you say the right thing or make the right incantation or rub the lamp the right way, I just do whatever you want me to do for your amusement or for your pleasure. Which already clues you into the fact that Jesus is operating on a level of authority that's different from your average teacher or your average saint or your average self-proclaimed God. His authority is such that he doesn't have to bend himself to the beck and call of any person who asks him or tells him to do something. But for our purposes, more to the point is how Jesus responds. When they ask him, show us something so that you can back up your claim to authority to do something like this, Jesus responds in verse 19 Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. We have the advantage of hindsight, right? And we have the advantage of John telling us what Jesus actually meant when he said that. Notice that what Jesus does here is that he does not merely predict the future. Right? When Jesus says, destroy this temple, and I'll raise it up again in three days... Read very carefully. He does not say, okay, you want a sign? If you destroy this temple or when you destroy this temple, in three days I'll raise it up again. You see the difference between prediction, if you do this or when you do this, I will do this. And what Jesus says, what Jesus says is actually given as an imperative. It's a command. They demand a sign, and what does Jesus demand? Do the sign yourself by tearing down this temple. Seems a bit odd, doesn't it? So I think what Jesus does by giving this command, yes, there is a predictive element there. There's no doubt That when Jesus says, turns the question back on them to say, you tear down this temple and I will do such and such. There's no doubt that there is a predictive element here, but it's more than just mere prediction. One author has said that the sense of what Jesus is getting at in the form of this command would be something like us paraphrasing it this way. If you tear down this temple and I command you to... I will raise it up again in three days. He's basically inviting them to be the sign of his authority that they call into question. Do you you see that? 
So right at the start of Jesus' ministry, what he wants to make clear is that from start to finish, my authority is such that whether you recognize it or believe it or not, I'm in complete control of what happens here. You don't believe that I have the authority to do this? Fine. To show you how great my authority is, I'm actually going to use you to create the sign that ultimately validates my authority. That's how in control I am of this whole thing. Right? Hold your place here in John and go over just a few pages to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, verses 26 through 28. Actually, let's go up to 25. Acts 4, 25. This is the disciples in Acts reflecting on what it is that they're encountering in terms of persecution as it ties into the bigger picture of the work of Christ. They say, Who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant, did say, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. That is unique authority. That is unique control. That from the kings of the nations of the earth down to the common citizen... That when Jesus says in John 2, you want a sign? I will make you part of my sign. The disciples looking back on it recognize that what happened here is that the people do to Jesus in rejecting him and denying his authority and rejecting him. In the ultimate act of rebellion by nailing him to a tree, the disciples say, but actually they only performed the sign of your authority that you determined they would perform. Jesus invites them to do what God has already determined that they're going to do. They do it freely, but God is in complete control of the whole situation. How do do you beat a God like that? How do you assert your will your preference, your opinion, over against a God who says, listen, whether you walk in perfect obedience or you walk in outright about rebellion, it really makes no difference because everything that you do only goes to serve my purposes anyway. I'm going to win. See, and some of this starts to, starts to trickle down into the Christian life and what it is that we celebrate today, even in communion. If you, if you hold your place here in John and you go over to Romans chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. 
Romans 5.20. Paul says, The law came in that the transgression might increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That as sin reigned, there's authority, right? Sin reigns, has authority through death, in death, even so, grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. The authority of Christ is such that Paul says, when you look at the annals of history and you see rampant sin and depravity and offensiveness and idolatry and fill in the blank, Paul says all that ultimately worked to show the glory of God in salvation. Even when people are sinning and rebelling against their Creator, their Creator says, but all this just paints a nice black background for my glory to show even more brilliantly. And then you turn over a few more pages in Romans to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. I'm going to read a few verses here down to verse 30. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. God causes all things to work together for good. Doesn't just cause good things to work together for good. He causes all things, even evil, even sin, works in some mysterious way to accomplish the eternal purposes of God. And for those who have been united with Christ, the eternal purposes of of God for us are nothing but good. And see, here's where Romans 8 starts to open this up a bit in a way for personal application that that tends to run much farther and much deeper than what we typically give it credit for. Most of our attention when we read, God causes all things to work together for good, to those who love him called according to his purpose, is what's said in the very next verse. For whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. So we say, rightly... Well, this is the way that it works out together for our good, that everything that happens, good, bad, ugly, beautiful, indifferent, whatever it is, everything ultimately is making us more like Christ. But often, frequently, when we talk about that, all of the emphasis, all of the focus is on how we're being made like Christ right now, right? So the search or the the challenge then is to say, okay, here it is, I've got a, a wayward spouse or I've got kids in rebellion or I just got a bad report from the doctor or I lost a job or whatever else. Okay, what is God doing in this situation to make me like Christ? 
And thankfully, God graciously gives us insight into those matters. He shows us how he's refining us, how he's purifying us, how he's cleansing us, how he's bringing us to maturity. But aren't there also times when we look for the answer, we look to say, okay, how is this working out for good? And we, we aren't really able to come up with an answer. You ever been in those situations? Usually those are the situations that are the most painful. Usually those are the situations that you really would rather not talk about. And the dilemma is that we go back to a verse like this and we say, okay, here, he's making me more like Jesus. How is he doing it? And if I can't find how he's doing it in the here and now, I become discouraged or I lose some hope. I become disheartened because I think it's all about the here and now. But what does Paul say in this passage as he continues to to go on in these verses that we read? Yes, all things work together for good because those whom God foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. But when does that happen? When do we become like Jesus? He he says it in the passage. Look down at verse 30. Whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. That's when we are ultimately, finally made like Jesus. When we are glorified. Anyone been glorified yet? Most of you know by looking in the mirror, that's not the case. So one of the challenges then in coming to grips with the authority of Christ is in recognizing that yes, while there are demonstrations of his authority and his control, that he graciously allows us to see and to witness in the here and now, there is an infinite number of of signs and proofs of his authority and his control in every affair of life that we will never see until we're face to face with him. So the loss of a child, a divorce, cancer, ALS, bankruptcy, foreclosure, mental or emotional diseases, all of these things. Jesus says, in the same way that my authority reigns supreme even over those who ultimately would reject me, my authority reigns supreme even over those acts of sin or breakdown or depravity that happen in your everyday life. But our problem is, is that we want to see in the here and now, and not everything that we want to see do we get to see in the here and now. Which comes to our second point. If, if, according to Jesus in John 2, we get a hint or a glimpse that's borne out through the rest of the pages of Scripture... That Jesus is in control, that his authority reigns supreme over everything that happens in life, even when it looks like things are out of control, 
If all of this ultimately is working according to the plan that God had already ordained, then what do we do in the meantime while we're waiting to be able to make sense out of the fact that life oftentimes doesn't seem to reflect God's authority in the reign of Christ. And here's where we come back to the insight that John gives us as to what was going on in the minds of the disciples. Jesus says, destroy this temple in three days and I will raise it up. The ultimate sign that Jesus is in control is that people will reject him. Jesus says, when you reject me by trying to destroy me, I'm going to show that I'm in control. Because your rejection is actually a tool in my hands. The disciples, however, in verse 22, we're told, When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoke. Did the disciples understand what Jesus meant when he said that? No. Didn't have a clue. And see, here's one of the things that's so interesting and so fascinating about what happens in this scene. Verses prior to this demonstrate that the disciples do have some sort of spiritual insight. Because when they see Jesus clean the temple out, what do they think of? They think of Scripture, Psalm 69. This is Scripture being fulfilled right in front of us. Zeal for your house will consume me. They, they get it, right? They get that part, and yet there's this whole other open-ended display of God's authority in Christ that they don't get. They don't even have a veiled guess at what it is that Jesus is talking about. It, isn't that itself emblematic of our Christian life? There are ways in which... God, through the power of His Son, works to conquer sin and to bring healing and to bring deliverance and to bring victory in ways that just boggle the mind. And when that happens, God at times will graciously, even in that very moment or sometimes after the fact, He'll come back and say, you remember when? This is what was happening. And we'll marvel and we'll worship at how great God is. And how he's in control of everything that happens to us. The good, the bad, the ugly. But then there's the other side where much of what we claim, we claim by faith. That when I don't have an answer as to why this child was taken from me prematurely. Or why this unexpected pregnancy happened. Or why I lost a job. Or why this or why that. I still come back and say, nevertheless, God's anointed ruler reigns. And he reigns over sin. He reigns through sin. He reigns over loss and through loss. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2.
See, the disciples don't get it until after the resurrection. And in part, if we had more time, we could, we could demonstrate why. Jesus says later on in, in John, in chapters 14 through 16, when he's talking about the fact that I'm going to be leaving soon, but I'm going to send you another helper, talking about the Holy Spirit. And one of the things that he says the Holy Spirit will do is that he will bring to your remembrance everything that I've said and done, Right? But that doesn't happen until after Jesus is raised and after he's ascended back up into heaven and the Holy Spirit is given as a gift and then this flood of new revelation comes in where all of a sudden the disciples and as they write the pages of scripture, they're able to see the light that was shining brilliantly even in the most darkest, heinous events of human history because Jesus was ruling and reigning through the whole thing. Our dilemma is very similar On the one hand, Paul and John and all these other apostles will say, even now, for those who have been united with Christ, we have been raised spiritually, right? We have our own resurrection, spiritual resurrection that's taken place, which means that if you have come to see and to know that Jesus is king, that he rules and reigns, and you've come to bow the knee and to acknowledge him as king, that in and of itself is a sign that you've been raised from the dead. Because without a resurrection, people don't see that. They don't get it. The reason that people don't see Jesus as God, the reason people don't see Jesus ruling and reigning, is because blind eyes and deaf ears and dead people don't see it. But... Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There it is. Death and resurrection, right? Dead in trespasses and sin, raised up, made alive, seated with him so that now we see who Jesus is. And yet, look at what Paul says in verse 7. So that, here's why he raised us up and here's why he united us with Christ. So that in the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Do you you get the magnitude of what Paul is saying in that last verse, verse 7? He's not denying all the gifts, all the grace, all the blessings that come from Jesus to us in the here and now. He's not denying that at all. We have been raised. We have been born again through no work of our own, but through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And yes, that's a great thing, but Paul says the reason that he does this, at least in this passage, is so that in the ages to come, he might show his... What? Far exceeding, far reaching, surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us. Do you know what that means? That means that as much as what you know of the grace of God in Jesus in your life right now, 
Whatever you've come to see and understand about how the rule and reign of Christ works to your good in every and all situations, there is an eternity of learning about the grace and kindness of Jesus Christ in your everyday life. You don't have a clue how Jesus has been working for you and through you and to you. And you're going to spend age upon age upon age upon age looking back over your life and seeing how in every event, every circumstance, Christ ruled and reigned supreme in such a way that good, bad, or ugly, nothing but grace and glory came to you. If in the ages to come, that's what we'll be learning and that's what we'll be reflecting on, there must be a lot of grace working through the rule and the reign of Christ right now. Otherwise, it wouldn't take us ages and ages to see and to learn and to hear about what it is that Christ has done. So here's the simple point. As we come to the Lord's table, as we celebrate and remember the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ to the right hand of the Father, we remember that even through death, Jesus ruled and reigned over every circumstance, over every event, every, every, over every person. No one, Jesus says, takes my life. I give it. I lay it down freely. I'm in control of this whole scenario. And as such, the authority and the rule of Christ continues for you on your behalf and to your advantage in every circumstance of life. No matter whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, horrific, terrifying, it does not matter. And it does not matter whether or not you see it right now because there's coming a good and better and greater resurrection in the final day in which all of this is going to be made clear. All of it. And so we come celebrating what it is that God has accomplished through Christ through his death. But we also come saying that in hope upon hope upon hope and faith upon faith upon faith, we still are waiting for the day in which we will be shown even more how good and how great our Savior is. Bow with me in prayer. Father, as we come now and as we partake in this sacrament that you have graciously given to us, we ask that you would give us the ability to be still and to know that you are God and that you would open blind eyes to see your glory in the face of Jesus Christ for life and salvation. Do it by the power of your Holy Spirit, Father. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.